may be seated. Thanks, Anse. So we are uh, in Matthew 6, and you want to keep your finger in that uh, place there in the Bible, because we're going to be going back and forth uh, from that chapter. And um, Matthew 6 really is sort of the second installment of what uh, is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching, hitting a lot of topics, and we called Matthew 5, the series was called Becoming Human. And what we said was that Jesus was uh, teaching us to uh, repent from less than human ways of thinking and acting, uh, to repent from objectifying uh, anger and lust and lying, and, um, and to then, in faith, move forward uh, in treating others like the image bearers that they are, uh, even to the point of affectionately and actively loving our enemies. And uh, it was, it's just an incredibly high bar that Jesus uh, sets. And, and we get to chapter 6, and uh, we realize that uh, this is not just a try harder this year to do this in chapter 5, but that Jesus has given us a means by which we are transformed into the kind of person that's described in Matthew 5. And that what's transforming about that is that in the practices that Jesus is describing in Matthew 6, we get more of God. And the more of God we get, the more we look like God, the more we image bear as we were created uh, to, to do. So yesterday, or last week, we talked about uh, the spiritual practice of giving. And if you didn't hear that, I encourage you to go back and l- listen on SoundCloud or whatever you listen to podcasts on. You can Search for Rich Stop Church, and we're the only Rich Stop Church, so uh, pretty easy to, to find us. Um, but today is the topic of prayer, and we're going to spend two weeks on this. And it partly, Jesus spends a lot of time on prayer. It's, it's the largest section of uh, the spiritual practice section here. Um, I think this is probably something we're more familiar with. Um, probably when we talked about giving and next week, uh, or in two weeks, we'll talk about fasting and those things aren't that familiar, perhaps, but, but prayer, you know, if, if, if you've been around the church any and been around Christianity, it's like, yeah, prayer's, just, prayer's a thing. Like, we, we, we like prayer, and we should do it, and we should do more of it, right? I think most of us always are feeling like we're not praying enough, right? Probably 100% of Christians, yeah, are you praying enough? No, not, not praying enough. And Jesus agrees that prayer is really important, and we see that here in his teaching, and he's already mentioned it in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's already snuck it in. Now, he didn't tell us how to pray for our enemies, but I, I think it was probably praying for their well-being since we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for them, okay? Um, but it just, he just sneaks it in, like, oh, yeah, this is, this is the thing you do if you're a Christ follower. And then eventually we get to this uh, section where he is going to teach us how to pray. And what I I want you to also see is that Jesus is teaching us as a practitioner of prayer. Jesus prays. Uh, We see this in different places in Matthew and throughout the Gospels, but here's a couple examples. So Matthew 14, 23, this is after he feeds the 5,000. And it says, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So 
he has this secret life of prayer. He's a practitioner of prayer. Um, probably the, the most uh, sort of profound uh, time of prayer between uh, Jesus and his father is Matthew 26. And this is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his death. And it says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying, the same words again. Now, there's a lot in that passage, but one is Jesus is praying. He's praying. He's in the, the, the most difficult uh, anguish of his life. And his response to that is to pray. Jesus had a secret life of prayer, a secret life with his Father. Now, this, this means that when we read this teaching, this is not, again, just like some lecture on prayer that Jesus is giving us, like he is a practitioner. He does this day in, day out. And so we get a little window into how Jesus thinks about prayer. It's really amazing. And so he's going to give us some do nots and some do's, two do nots and two do's of prayers, how the, how the passage is uh, structured, okay? So first, do not. Do not pray to impress others. All right, Matthew 5, 5 or 6, 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and they, that they may see, be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you have received their, they have received their reward. Right? Now, Jesus mentioned this earlier in terms of spiritual practices being done in front of others um, for the purpose of, of impressing others. Matthew 6, 1 uh, just bump up to in your chapter there. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He mentions in giving, he's, he, giving to impress others. He's, he, this seems to be on his mind. He keeps saying it over and over and over. He says it in an introductory comment, and then he says it about giving. He's going to say it about prayer. He's going to say it about fasting. It seems to be a problem, and it is. It is. Uh, what I said last week is that he's, he's teaching to a very religious society. Everyone's religious. It's also a shame-based society. So there's a lot of pressure not to dishonor the family or dishonor the synagogue or dishonor those in the culture and to just pretend outwardly to, to, to make sure that you don't dishonor anyone and you don't get yourself into any trouble um, first century Judaism had these calls to prayer, much, much like Islam. I don't know if you've ever been in an Islamic country. Uh, there's a call that goes out at particular hours of the day, and 
uh, depending on the commitment level to, to Islam in that country, uh, prayer mats go down and f- folks are praying right there in the sidewalk, you know, right there in the street, in the shop, right? And it's these hours that are, that are calls to prayer. Well, Judaism had something similar in the first century. And so at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m., especially during the day, there was this call to prayer. And if you're in Jerusalem, you heard a trumpet, and that trumpet would go out, and then, and then it was time to pray. And if you were close enough to a synagogue, you might run into the synagogue and pray. And that looked pretty impressive, right? Like, you're like I'm going to the synagogue. I, I could be working. I could be doing this thing, but I'm going to go pray at the synagogue. But if you couldn't get to the synagogue, you could just do it on the street corner. And you just say a prayer. Now, is there anything wrong with having some kind of structure to your prayer? No, it's actually kind of cool. Like, this is helpful. We could, we could use this little structure, right? Like have a 6 a.m. prayer and a 9 a.m. prayer and a noon prayer and a 3 p.m. prayer. And, and many, even Christians throughout the, the ages, have had these like hours of prayer. And there's nothing wrong with it, having some kind of a structure. But that structure had become a means for religious hypocrisy. And so the praying that was being done on the street corner and in the synagogue was being done to impress others. It wasn't being done to actually interact with God. Now, why is this such a big deal? Again, Jesus seems really worked up about this. He keeps mentioning these um, religious hypocrisies. One, one of the reasons is, is, is because God is being used as a means to get something that the person wants more than God. I want you to hear that again. He, 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 what's happening is people are using these uh, these, these religious activities as a means to get something more than they want God himself. That's idol worship. That's false worship. They're worshiping the, 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 the others being impressed. Like this becomes their ultimate God. And they're using prayer in order to worship that God of having people impressed with them with their religious activities, and it's a form of false worship. And you, I mean, read the Old Testament, false worship is not looked on highly. It's the main problem <laughs> that's being addressed over and over and over and over and over again. And these kind of religious uh, hypocritical activities are a form of idol worship. And again, people, um, for the most part, probably unaware that it's happening. They've been discipled by the religious culture around them. Everyone's doing this. And, and so it's, it's not like they're waking up going, I'm going to be a religious hypocrite today. <laughs> you know, evil laugh. Um, it's, it's just a culture. It's just a culture. Again, some of you have grown up in religious context. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just a culture that, that, is, that is discipling you passively, right? And, and Jesus is stepping in there, and he is confronting that culture of religious hypocrisy. There's a lot of this in the South. Let's just be honest. Yeah. There are cultural points that you can get for being a part of church. There are opportunities for power within the church that you can get by pretending. Right? And, and, and so this, this, this is so second nature to us, right? And, and, and so Jesus is confronting that uh, culture. I mean, I grew up religious, right? I went to uh, a, a church that really wasn't preaching Christ. It, it really wasn't 
um, preaching the Bible. It, it was a churchianity, I usually call it, right? And as far as I knew, this is all there was. I thought, this is, this, is, this, is what, this is what you do. This is what Christianity is. You go to church. You try to be a good person. You do all the stuff, right? And I remember going through um, this, this program that my church had um, that was like in seventh and eighth grade, and they, they, they took you through some lessons and some things that you, you, would, you would learn and read, and then at the end of it, you, you would be confirmed. You would confirm your faith. And uh, I was dressed in a white robe with about 10 of my other friends, and I'm an eighth grader, and we're up in the front taking a picture, and I'm literally behind the back of my friend, flipping off my friend on the other side in my white robe. And in the very next breath, I'm, they're asking, do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ? I'm like, I do. It was complete hypocrisy. But I, I never gave it a second thought. I, I didn't know that it wasn't something, that, that there was something more, right? Now, those that go in through those church traditions and have experiences with, with what's called confirmation, many times that's actually authentic and genuine. And so there's nothing wrong with that structure. But I was just doing the structure. I, I wasn't doing the actual inward reality that was supposed to be attached to the structure until I heard someone give a testimony about believing the gospel, becoming a Christian, experiencing a relationship with God. And I was, my first reaction was, oh, that's not how they do it at my church. We do it different. And I just thought it was a difference. But I could not get it out of the back of my head. Wow, that person has some sort of relationship with God. <laughs> I'm interested, like, I want that, right? And so Jesus is confronting the culture about religious hypocrisy, not, not to shame all the religious people and, you know, get, get them down, but to actually invite them into something more. Because look what he says in regard to the do. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's a beautiful invitation. Wow. Beautiful invitation. Um, saying to you, pray to your father. Your father sees what's going on in secret. That is such an invitation to relationship. With God, And this is where Jesus is, is wanting to bring his hearers. He, again, he's not just calling out religious hypocrisy. He's wanting them to, to reject religious hypocrisy and move into this genuine relationship with God through Christ. Uh, Amy and I, she didn't know I was going to do this, but we've been, we've been talking about some of her background and experiences in Judaism. And she had been through some teachings and some heard some pray, you know, some prayers being uttered at synagogue and uh, at temple, and what we were we were talking the other night, and uh, she was she was saying uh, that she's like I, I was never told that I could like pray to God personally. Right? I, I think the original hearers in this passage, I think they had the same kind of feeling. I think when Jesus said to them, "You can talk to your father," I think they. <gasps> What? I can talk to God? Me and him? Are you nuts? I mean, we read this and we're like, yeah, I mean, this, this is what you do. Right? You can pray anytime you want and talk to God. I, I think when they heard this, this was so novel to them. 
this invitation to pray personally to God as one's father. This is no guilt-driven cracking of the whip by Jesus to try harder to have a prayer life. (laughs) It's an invitation to a secret life with God. Now, the teaching is also practical, and I really appreciate this, that Jesus is coming at it from really a discipleship perspective, right? Because he's not just inviting us into a relationship with the Father. He's giving us some practical handholds on how to actually pull this off. And one of the ways he's helping us to do this is to ask us to cultivate the habit of solitude, the habit of solitude. Um, I mentioned this last week of the, the spiritual practices that Dallas Willard has, and he has one list that is what he calls the spiritual practices of abstinence or detaching. And so what you have Jesus teaching his, his disciples to do is to, to detach by going into your room and shutting the door. And if he was teaching this today, he would say, go into your room, shut the door, and shut off your phone. And then in that solitude where you detach, you can attach to God in prayer. So you see, see, see the, the way that these are coupled that of solitude and prayer. It's, it's really short, but man, it's so profound, the way that he is training his, his followers to learn how to pray. Um, Dallas Willard talks in his uh, book, Spirit of the Disciplines, about solitude. He says this, solitude frees us, actually. This above all explains its primacy and priority among the disciplines The normal course of day-to-day human interactions locks us into patterns of feelings, thought, and actions that are geared to a world set against God. Nothing but solitude can allow the development of a freedom from the ingrained behaviors that hinder our integration into God's order. There are ingrained behaviors (laughs) and attitudes that, that we're just sucking up from the world, from the culture. We cannot detach from those things if we don't go in our room, shut the door. We, we, we can only detach if we get alone, we get quiet. Um, for some of you, this scares you to death. I know. <laughs> it is scary to get the in solitude, right? You never stop. You're always doing something, talking to somebody in an activity. You're always talking to friends, looking at your phone, talking to family, interacting with family, looking at your phone, talking to work colleagues, doing a task at work or a class or classmates, looking at your phone, doing some fun activities, having fun, right? There's nothing wrong with having fun. Going out, doing all kinds of stuff, looking at your phone. You with me? You never detach. You never go in your room, shut the door, shut off the phone. And you can't carve out a secret life with God if you don't do that. And so Jesus is is teaching us that solitude works hand in hand with prayer. And what's so scary about it is that all this overstimulation is in part a coping mechanism. We're really scared what we're going to find if we get quiet. And so, yeah, we're being discipled by our culture to be overstimulated all the time, but we're also using it as a coping mechanism. Because 
And it's a good reason, right? Because you're going to find some stuff down in there in the quiet. You're going to find some anxiety, maybe some depression, some fear, right? You're going to find some anger, some sadness, some loneliness. It's, it's scary. And, and at the very least, you're going to find some lack of focus and some dependency on your phone. <laughs> I mean, I have it. I mean, I, you know, I'm going into prayer. I, I try to take the phone, put it in the other room, and it's just like an appendage. It's like, ah, I don't want to leave my phone, right? And I'm in my 50s. And so those of you that are digital natives, that, that thing's like attached. <laughs> but as a Christ follower, you go into your room, shut the door, shut off the phone. Um, that it's scary stuff, right? And so Willard talks about this in his book uh, when he's talking about solitude, and he quotes another writer, Louis Boer, and he says, Solitude is a terrible trial, for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within us and discloses the fact that these abysses are haunted. It is. It's scary. So I want to acknowledge that. I don't want to just say, you know, yeah, you really ought to do some solitude. I know it's scary in there, right? Especially if you haven't done a lot of it. But then Willard goes on to comment about the abyss. He says, we can only survive solitude if we cling to Christ there. And yet what we find of him in that solitude enables us to return to society as free persons. And we could talk about that for a while. Go in your room. Shut the door. This is a do of prayer. Now, Jesus is teaching us that we have to carve out a physical secret place in order to have a spiritual secret place with God. Again, it's super practical. Um, when I was a student at UT, I was a brand new Christian, and I, I, got, it, I got this. Like, this, this is important. I need to do this. And so for me, it was I'd get out of class, you know, whenever my, my schedule was, and, and then I would slip off into PCL library or the science library. It was my, it was my favorite. Like, go up in the stacks, and I'd just go to the same desk every time in the old musty science library and sit down in that, and it was absolutely quiet, especially during the afternoon, and, and I would spend time with God alone. And it was a secret place, a physical secret place that was a place for me to carve out a spiritual secret place. When I became a youth pastor and then a college pastor, I would go hide in the church building. And no one knew where I was. And every once in a while, that backfired a little bit. The secretary would be walking through the hall like, Robert, Robert, where are you? And I'd be like, over here. Um, but I had some secret places. And I would go to those secret places. And they, one was like a little stairwell. This was in, in Stillwater. Um, stairwell had a big window and it was the stairwell up to the balcony. So during the week, nobody was going there. And so this is my little spot in the sun, come through the window, secret place where I could have time with God. And then as a pastor um, in Massachusetts, it was the Frost Library. And this was at Amherst College. And I was like three blocks from my house. And I would walk up there and I'd pray on my way up there. And then I would go in, again to this little crevice in, on the third floor. And no one could find me in there. No one even knew that existed. Right? And I was just in there alone in a secret physical place 
that was helping me carve out a secret spiritual place. I would also encourage you, I'm just going to throw this in, to use a journal. So writing down your prayers is helpful because one of the things we struggle with is focus. We're so dang distracted. So even when you get alone, your mind's just going to go crazy, right? And so crystallizing your thoughts and your prayers with writing them down in a journal, incredibly helpful, even if you never look at it again, never read it again. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's focusing your mind as you pray and you consider what you're reading in Scripture. Carving out a physical secret place in order to have a secret place, secret life with God. You also need a time. If you just say, I'm just going to do this whenever I have time, whenever I get around to it, this rarely happens. So have, have some time. As a student, I worked it into my schedule. So if I was coming out of a class at 10 a.m., and I didn't have a class till noon, I would slip into the library for an hour and then start studying or whatever. And I just put it in my, my schedule. Um, same thing with, uh, for, for some, it's first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning is good. I think it's best because it kind of gets you on the right track. But it doesn't have to be that, right? You're like, well, if I'm going to be a super rock star Christian, I got to do it in the morning. Well, it's helpful, but just do it. Just Figure out a time in your schedule. It could be lunchtime. You know, if you're, if you're working, you've got a, a lunch break. I don't know. Whatever, whatever. But you, it needs to be, okay, this is the time I'm going to do this. And then some kind of plan for what you're going to do when you get there. So what, is it, what might it look like? So let's say this. Wake up in the morning. And this is what it looks like for me. I, I turn, turn the phone off or put it on do not disturb. Do you know your phone will do not disturb? Yes, yeah, it's, it's helpful, really helpful. Um, uh, get you a hot cup of something, coffee, tea, whatever. I don't know. I start with tea in the morning. I don't want to get over-caffeinated because I hurt somebody. Um, so I start with tea and honey and uh, sit down, pray, pray that God would, would show himself to me. I read some scripture. I have some kind of plan for that. I might be reading, uh, you know, read through the Bible last year. It took me 14 months. Oh, that's okay. Um, and now I'm reading through the book of James. So I'm, I'm reading some scripture. I'm asking God to show himself through me. Then I'm just being still. I don't just want to talk back at him. I want to be still. And I'm writing things along the way. And sometimes that's insights in the Scripture. Sometimes that's to-do list because this is what happens when I get in solitude. I start thinking about all the things I need to do and things that I might forget. If I write them down, they have no power over me because they're right there, and I'll do it later. Right? These are all little, little hacks to try to figure out how to get yourself calmed down. <laughs> And not be distracted. So you can actually read God's word and do it in a prayerful way. And then pray. Pray for the things you, you need. Pray for the, the things that people in your life need. Pray for the things that God's placed on your heart. Pray for our church. Pray for me. Pray. Right? That's what it looks like. It's not that complicated. But, but it's, there's a flow to it. There's a rhythm to it. And, and just like all your relationships, um, you have kind of liturgies that you have with your friends and people that you know. It's, it's interesting how you, you just have these uh, conversations you have, and you start to get into sort of an unofficial liturgy with God, and it's good because it's a relationship, right? and you're doing that in the secret place. Those of you in your 20s, uh, do that for 60 years, okay, every day. That will profoundly shape you. If you go in that secret place and carve out that secret life, 
And you do that for 60 years. For some of us, it's, it's fewer years. that We don't have 60 years, but it's okay. Um, but some of you have, you got 60 years to walk with Jesus if, if God's so gracious to give you those years. It will radically shape you. There's no more important thing that I could be telling you as your pastor right, than what I'm telling you right now. Yeah, you need to come to church. You need to hear the word taught. You, you need to worship with other believers. There's a lot of things that, that are important for Christian growth. You get this one down, you're going to be fine. Because God's going to, he's going to form you radically through this secret life with God. And honestly, not a lot of Christians have done this. They haven't done the discipline that's needed to carve this out. And it's affected them. And it's affected the church in America. Because here, we're hopefully having the secret life as, as, as part of Ridgetop. We have the secret life with God during the week, and we come together. We have something to give. It's out of overflow. This is, this is what makes a, a church healthy, is that we actually have a relationship with God in the secret place, and then when we come into the corporate, we have something to give. And then the corporate energizes the secret. So it is communal, and it is also uh, in solitude. It's both. Right? And they work together. So hopefully, like, you're in a communal setting right now, and you're hearing the Word taught, and I'm talking about prayer. I'm hoping that this week, this is going to encourage you to go and have more of a secret life with God. But you do that for years and years and years and years. It will shape you radically. It will make you a better worker, a better spouse, a better parent, a, a better church member, a, a better human. Right? You're going to be formed in a radical way in Christ through that discipline. And Jesus says, you're going to get a reward. You do this, you go in your room, you shut the door, you pray, you do that for 60 years, you're getting a reward, and the reward is more of God. You get more of God. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, what happens is, is, is that you grow in relationship with God such that something that might feel like a discipline on the front end becomes a delight. Like in the morning when I wake up, I'm not like, well, I should pray and read my Bible. Gosh, I'm a pastor, you know. I need to do this. Check the box. I'm longing for it. I, I can't wait to do it. Now, are there some mornings where I'm, I'm like, eh, I don't want to do it? Sure. But most mornings. I can't wait. I can't wait to sit down and be alone with God. Right? And so it is, it is a delight. Again, it may start as a discipline, but don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going in your room, shutting the door. Do it as a discipline. And Jesus is teaching it as such, but it will become a delight. There's a reward there. It's worth it. Right? Press in to that. Number three, do not treat prayer like magic. So now that he's got you in, in, in the room, he's got you praying, he's going to equip you on how to pray. Very logical here, right? So he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So Jesus actually critiques both Jewish spirituality of the day and Gentile spirituality of the day. Very even-handed in this uh, critique. And he, he, he starts talking about Gentiles or non-Jews and how they practice, quote-unquote, prayer. And the way they do it is like magic. 
And I talked about this last week. Um, when, you, when you do something like, like magic, you're saying certain words or casting spells. You're declaring certain incantations in order to manipulate a, a power, like a general power, and trying to get that power to do what you want it to do. That's magic. That's magic. Sometimes the Bible calls this divination. Same thing. And, and so Jesus is critiquing that in the Gentile world and telling his followers, don't do that. Don't pray like magic. It's not magic, right? Um, we tend to default to this, partly because we are so tempted to make our relationship with God transactional. And so we want to be able to control him. That's not how relationships work. But, but, but people will fall into this so easily. And here's a, here's a silly example. Um, the, the saying, in Jesus' name at the end of every prayer. Right? Now, I do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but some Christians think that it's, it's sort of like magical words. And that if you say the prayer and then you say, in Jesus' name, and you say it loud and you say it passionate, in Jesus' name, and they say things like, there's power in the name, right? It starts to become divination. It starts to become magic, right? Now, what, is, what does it mean in, in Jesus' name? Well, what, what it means is, is that you're praying a uniquely Christian prayer, that you're praying to the Father through the Son who has made a way for you to be reconciled to the Father at the cross. And so when you say in Jesus' name, you're declaring, hey, this is a Christian prayer. I know that I couldn't even have a conversation with the Father if it wasn't for Jesus. But you're not saying it like magic. You're not saying it so you'll get what you want. And if you don't say it, you won't get what you want, right? That's not, that's not how it works, right? So we can so easily slip in to these things. And honestly, there's a, there's a lot in just sort of general Christianity that, that, that falls into this. And I, I want, I'm talking about it because I want you to be able to discern it and sniff it out and not fall into it. Um, there's a whole swath of Christianity that believes that you can kind of manifest things with your words, right? And, and they would, would point to uh, Proverbs that says the, the power of life and death is in the tongue, right? And they would say, you know, you say these words and these things happen. If you don't say these words, these things won't happen. And it quickly turns into kind of a divination that somehow you have power. Really, the only word that can manifest anything is God's word, right? Now, we should speak God's word and speak of God's word, and there's power in that. But even that is not like magic. You can speak the gospel to somebody, and they're like, eh, not that interested. Speak the gospel to someone else, and they're like, I want to become a Christian, it's not magic. Is there power? Yes, absolutely. But it's, it's not a manipulation of, of God. It's quite mysterious, actually, how some people respond, some people don't. And words do matter, so don't get me wrong on that. Like being, being positive, encouraging people, building them up, we should do that. And that is life-giving. And using words to tear people down and destroy them, like that's bad. Like that's, that, that is death. And so we shouldn't do that. But it's not like magic. Right? So Jesus is warning us here. Don't treat prayer like magic. Number four, do treat prayer like a relationship. Do treat prayer like a relationship. 
Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Um, on the face of that, you might think, prayer doesn't even matter. God already knows. He already knows what I need, so why do I need to ask? Um, but that's not really what Jesus is saying here. What He's saying is, is that you respond to God or you interact with God like a parent. Like a parent. Um, especially when you're a kid, your parent already knows what you need before you ask them, right? You say, Mom, can I have lunch? They know you need lunch, right? And they're going to give you lunch. Um, but you, you should ask, you know, you can ask. If you're hungry, you can ask. And Mom and Dad will give you the food that you need. Now you say, Mom, can I have a rattlesnake? Mom's like, no, you can't have a rattlesnake. I want a rattlesnake! No! No, you get bit by the rattlesnake, you'll be in a coma. It's not good, baby. I'm not giving you a rattlesnake. This, partly Jesus is describing this prayer relationship with God like a child with a parent. Because sometimes, sometimes we're asking for rattlesnakes. Now, we don't know they're rattlesnakes, but God knows they're rattlesnakes, right? Like, I want this boyfriend or this girlfriend or this money or this job or this thing. And God's like, that's a rattlesnake. He's like, I'm not giving that to you. And we're like, no, I, I need it. No, honey, I love you. <laughs> I, I'm your dad. Like, I know better. <laughs> like, right? This is how prayer works. Again, it's not magic. It's not manipulation. It's not incantation. It's praying to God as a parent. Almost every time Jesus talks about prayer in the Gospels, he goes to this analogy of talking to God like a parent. He does it in Matthew 7. We'll get to this later, but um, he's talking about prayer. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So he's, he's describing this relationship with God as a parent. Now there's some implications, lots of implications, but here's a few. One is prayer is not transactional. And I've said this already, but I want to say it again. It doesn't mean you don't ask for stuff, but the favor that you're given by God, is not based on your own merit, right? And so, yes, we, we ask for things, but, but that, that is not, it's not transactional, right? And that re relating with Him should not be based on whether or not He gives us what we want. It's not transactional, it's relational. And so we're, we're praying to God, we're asking for things, but we're trusting that He is all wise, He's all good, He's all powerful. He's our Heavenly Father. And so it, it ought not be transactional. Prayer is relational. Right? So prayer is a means of, of, of an ever-increasing intimacy with God. That's what's going to happen in a secret place. Like, go in your room, shut the door, shut off your phone, pray. You, you're going to experience an ever-increasing intimacy with the Father. And so this is also what he's saying when he's likening prayer to the, a, a conversation between a child and a parent. Part of that ever-increasing knowing, I think, should also include the Bible, right? The Bible is God's word to us. 
And so in that relationship, that prayerful relationship, I think that should be saturated with the Scripture because we're wanting to hear His words and then we're, we're praying back um, to Him. And then thirdly, the posture of prayer is submission to a loving authority, right? It's, it's submission to a loving authority. God's not your equal. He's not your buddy. He is your friend, but like your father is your friend. There is a loving authority that's the basis of this relationship. He can be trusted. He's good. He's powerful. He's wise. So when we ask for a rattlesnake uh, and he doesn't give it to us, we trust him. Right? Again, we don't know we're asking for a rattlesnake, but when he doesn't give us things, we trust him. He's good. He's powerful. He's wise. And just because, you know, he's, he's going to work with us when we're asking for rattlesnakes doesn't mean we want to stay in the toddler stage with God forever. We want this relationship to grow. We want to grow out as much as we can of asking for these things that are hurtful to us and taking glory away from God. And so there's a, there's a growth out of this kind of toddler stage to a place of eager submission to God. Trusting Him more through His Word and prayer to the point that we can say, and we'll look at this next week, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, God. It's a, that's a really mature prayer. Like, hey, I got some things I want to ask, but number one, your kingdom come, your will be done. I want to submit to you because I trust you. You're a loving, good, wise, powerful Father. Now, I want to mention that not only do we have Christ making a way for us to be in this relationship with the Father, but we're also being assisted by God the Holy Spirit. This is one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And I want you to see this in Romans chapter 8, um, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you will not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now check this next verse out. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you're a genuine Christian, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is saying to your spirit, hey, you're one of his kids. Not just when you become a Christian, but continuously. You're one of his. This is partly what's happening in the secret place. Is the Spirit is reminding you who you are, that you are, you are loved, that you are his child. Uh, Professor Douglas Moo at Wheaton College, he uh, writes this about this, verse 15 especially. He says, in using the verb crying out, so the Abba, Abba Father part, Paul stresses that our awareness of God as Father comes not from rational consideration or from external testimony alone, but from a truth deeply felt and intensely experienced. This is partly what's happening in the secret place. The truth is being deeply felt. The truth that you are a child of God is being intensely experienced. Do we need to teach it? Do we need to know it? Yeah. Absolutely. We're doing it right now. But the Spirit is delivering this to the depths of your soul. Deeply felt, intensely 
experience. That's what's in a secret place. <laughs> That's what Jesus is welcoming you into. He's not cracking the whip saying, you really should pray more this, this year, you know? He's welcoming you into this deeply felt, intensely experienced relationship with God the Father. We're reminded of this fellowship that we have with the Father through the Son every time we come to this table. There's so much going on in this table. I, we, could, we, we, you know, we can talk about this table every week, and we are. First of all, it's a table, which in the first century represents table fellowship. Eating with people didn't just mean we're hungry and we need to eat. Eating with people meant I'm in fellowship with you. I'm in relationship with you. And so when we come to this table, God is saying, I want to be in fellowship with you. And you're like, wow, that's amazing, right? And that fellowship is corporate, but also it's personal, right, in a secret place. And we get to the table and we're like, what's for dinner? This is amazing. We get to have a fellowship dinner with God. And he's like, bread, cup, really? What's that about? Well, this is about the son and what the son had to do in order to open up the gateway for us to have table fellowship with the Father. And we're reminded of that every week, right? On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's the first thing on the menu. Then he took a cup. And after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus knew if he didn't die on the cross, we couldn't forgive our sins and we couldn't be reconciled with the, the Father who loves us. And so not only is that reconciliation experienced communally, which we're experiencing this morning, but it's also experienced in solitude. And so know that you could not go into solitude and have a relationship with the Father if it wasn't for Jesus and what he did on the cross. This is why we say, in Jesus' name. And so if you are a Christ follower, um, we welcome you to the table. But through Christ, you're able to fellowship with God the Father, through God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. And you're able to do that with other brothers and sisters in Christ who have that same indwelt spirit and are now in community together. If you've not yet put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. I hope you hear this isn't a crack of the whip to try to manipulate you to do that, but an invitation to a secret life with God. And there is only one path, and that is through faith in Christ and what he's done for you at the cross. There's no other path. And so if you've not yet received that by faith, I want to encourage you to do that. Perhaps God's waking you to that reality. And then you can experience a secret life and a communal life with God in Christ. But if you're not there yet, we're glad you're here. And we're going to encourage you during this time of taking the bread and the cup uh, that you would remain in your seat and pray and think about what you're hearing. Because this is table fellowship for those who have come to the Father through faith in Christ. So let's pray. Father, we're, if we're not, should be overwhelmed with your heart toward us. that you want a secret life between us and you. 
and that you sent your son to accomplish that. And we're, we're just, we're grateful for that, God, and we pray that we would live into that, Lord, as we've heard this teaching, as we looked at your word and your invitation, God, that we would live into that. We would take the, whatever the next step is, taking some time to be in our room with the door shut or uh, doing it more often, or making a schedule, making a plan, whatever the case may be, Lord, help us to move towards you this week in a new way, a fresh way. And I thank you, God, for the secret life that many in the room already have. As it makes this fellowship be a, a fellowship of great spiritual vitality that comes from, in, in large part, personal relationships that those in this room share with you. God, would you bolster that? Would you quicken us to these realities? Give us a hunger and a thirst for this? That we would delight in your presence, delight in being in a relationship with you if that's not already the case. And we pray that many others would find that same delight. God, thank you for the bread and the cup, for the table fellowship it reminds us of, for the cost of that table fellowship that it reminds us of. And we pray you would bless the bread and the cup and bless this time of worship, of prayer, of singing, of, of remembering what you've done and the implications of it. God, thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.